Well, hello and welcome, uh, Haurim. My name is Tom Williams, and I was invited by James to um, to give this month's message. And I'm going to do it over um, a recording on Zoom here with some slides that I prepared. If you don't know uh, who I am, uh, I've been a Haurim member, I think, since about 2001, where I came across Dwight's teachings through a variety of ways. I was blessed to to know and learn from Dwight um, from that point until uh, he passed. Both Dwight and Karen uh, were very important to me and Karen still is. And of course, uh, meeting James around the same time uh, as I met Dwight and having interacted with James and in the Hovering community has really you know, impacted my life, my family's life, my teaching. And now a new COVID era church startup where I've been challenged to give a lot of messages for the first time to a group, I should say, uh, to a group that's never heard them before. So I've really been thinking through many of the topics, asking myself, what are the, those baseline topics that, that everyone needs to know, the foundational teachings of the faith, especially from those who have been teaching and learning from this you know, context, the way of thinking, Hebraic, their Jewish roots, or just the, the Bible in its context, trying to figure out how to do that has been a challenge over the last six or eight months. And so one of the messages that I've always struggled with, or at least found difficult to talk about is the gospel, partly because the way that the modern gospel message has always seemed to be taken out of context. And for those of you who know, I've, I've got a video series for the JC Studies on taken out of context, trying to understand how the Second Temple period or, or the context of the Second Temple period is really important to those of us who, who teach the New Testament. But oftentimes within the Jewish roots of the Hebraic roots community, you know, we kind of bristle at the idea of the way that the gospel is presented um, sort of out of context, out of sort of the historical way of thinking about what's going on. So we shy, we often shy away from the topic because we don't want to offend people. We we don't know exactly how to how to deal with it. So in this new community, there was some questions saying, hey, let's preach the gospel. We all think we know, well, I went to church this week and it was a great message, but you know, nobody preached the gospel. So there's this idea of what the gospel should be or is. And so I wanted just to, I took two messages, two different Sundays, and I laid this out a little bit and I sort of brought them both together for this, to go through some of the slides that I went through with our community a group of people who who aren't mostly have had not been exposed and still are not really that exposed to sort of the Hebraic foundations of the faith. Although week by week, as I'm able to teach a couple times a month, um, I'm able to, I think, incorporate some of that. So hopefully that'll change over time. When we think of the gospel, we think of how many different things do we think of when we think of the gospel? The, the word is how, how often it's used. Some people think it's just a, a genre of music, the, you know, gospel category. You can win a, a Grammy for gospel music. And so the word has been used so much in so many different contexts. Um, and with the assumption that people know what it means, um, we often find um, difficulty in figuring that out. So I just thought I would start with this question. What is the gospel? Um, and maybe there's there's some of you who, have, who are listening to this who you know maybe don't have a Hebraic perspective yet, and so this will be a, hopefully a good background overall uh, for those who have never been introduced to this idea at all. Um, so is it just all of God's truth? We often say you know this is the gospel truth, as if somehow gospel means truth, um, and so that's maybe it's not just God's truth, maybe it's any truth. Uh, but the idea that it just means something that's true. Oftentimes, we just think of, well, I, I read the gospel or the Bible is the gospel or so the word of God. Um, some people may just say, well, it's just the whole Bible or maybe it's just the New Testament. Maybe the New Testament is the gospel and the Old Testament is something else. And of course, you know, we one of the reasons why I think uh, the Jewish Jewish roots community often bristles at the idea of the gospel the way it's presented is because it's often presented as an antithesis to the law or to the Old Testament. Well, we know that the four, there's four books in the New Testament uh, that are called Gospels. So maybe this is what gospel means. Maybe it just means a, a type of literature 
um, or a type of book that's in the Bible. Maybe the gospel is just the story of Jesus's life or maybe the collection of his teachings. So it's not just the New Testament or not just the books in the New Testament. Maybe it's, maybe it's just the red letters in the gospels. If you have a red letter Bible that has Jesus's words in red, as if those, those words are the gospel. Oftentimes, if you can teach on Jesus's life and people will say, well, unless you've preached or talked about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you haven't preached the gospel. So that is what the gospel is. It's, it's just merely sort of the, maybe the last week of Jesus's life um, that we really should be, or the last three days of his life uh, that is really the gospel. Or is it just the explanation? Is it not just the events, but is it how you tell them? It's how you express, how you give the message. And that's the gospel. So, you know, telling the message and getting a response. And then, you know, I think the more general idea when people say, you know, I went to church today, I heard a message, it was a great message, but they didn't preach the gospel. What most, what most people think when they say that, they're saying nobody explained how to get saved. Of course, if you go back a few years, you know, nobody offered an opportunity to come up and respond to how to get saved or how, how to receive the gospel. We're going to see, I think, that, you know, 2,000 years of church history, especially the last 50 to 80 years of sort of evangelical, we'll, we'll talk about that word here in a minute, but the evangelical church and how they view the gospel has, has really affected the way that we think about this. And and when we go back and we ask the question, well, how how did those in the first century, how did the how did Jesus, how did John, how did Paul, how did the disciples, and how did the early church hear this idea, and what were the people responding to? We're going to kind of dip back into that, and hopefully we can come back with something that not only is more in context, but is also something that we can still respond to today. So let's just start with this idea of the four gospels. So we have the four gospels, and I think everyone, um, you know, pretty much recognizes that there are four gospels titled that way. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, it's really the only one that defines itself directly as a gospel. Mark one one specifically says this is the gospel. In fact, Mark uses the term uh, the most than really than all of the other four gospels. So Mark, you know, he starts out his statement by saying, this is the gospel. And that term that we'll see here in Greek is used by Mark more than he, more than the others, even though it's a, it is the shortest of the gospels of the four gospel writings. Matthew uses the term a little bit less frequently, but in a similar manner as Mark. So anytime Mark uses it, uh, Matthew will also use it in a parallel passage very often. It certainly is used in, in a similar manner. And we'll see a little bit later that it's used oftentimes translated as good news in Luke, but it's used as gospel in Matthew. And like I said, uh, Luke, the passages of the Greek word for gospel that are used often in Mark and uh, Matthew are translated as good news. The book of Acts, which we also believe is written by Luke, also uses the word gospel twice, or the Greek word that translated as gospel twice. Ironically, the Gospel of John, which some would say is the, you know, that first book that we like to read as the quintessential gospel, doesn't actually use the Greek word for gospel at all. It doesn't have one single use for the Greek term used to translate gospel or good news, which is kind of interesting. And, and we don't have time to get into it, but there's other, obviously, a lot of differences between the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, but this is another one of them. Interestingly, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John doesn't use the term either. And of course, that's all writings that we, we attribute to John. The book of Revelation does use the word. And Paul in Titus doesn't use it. Uh, James, the book of James doesn't use it. And 2nd Peter doesn't use it. And I, you know, I always thought, you know, it's ironic that the gospel of John doesn't use this term, but ironically, John 3.16 is often viewed by many as sort of the gospel in one verse. In fact, if you grew up in my era, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and obviously it still lingers today, John 3.16 is thought of as the gospel. So have you seen it anywhere? Back in my day, you couldn't go to a you know football game or a baseball game without somebody holding up a sign saying John 3.16. And so the idea is, not, it's not just the words of John, it's just if you write John 3.16, just the reference, 
uh, that somehow that has the power to get someone saved or to begin thinking about salvation. So we are often taken certain passages of the Bible and we put them on a bumper sticker and we think that that will sort of work in the process of getting someone saved. So let's talk a little bit about this word gospel. I think most of you may know, obviously the word gospel literally means good news. It, it's actually an old English word. So this is, we're dealing with the word, uh, an English word, gospel, which comes from the old English God spell, which literally means a good spell or a good story or a glad tidings. So, you know, sit a spell, the idea of a, tell me a spell is a story and it's a good story, a, a God spell. And so this is where the translation comes. We're going to see here in a minute what the Greek word is behind this, but this is where we get the word gospel. So it just means good news or a good story. Of course, many of you already know that the, the Greek word behind this is euangelion, uh, comes really from two words, basically means the same thing, a true or a good tiding or a message. Angelion, which is the root word that we get for angel. So it's as a messenger, same idea of a messenger. Angel is really in both uh, Hebrew and Greek is the idea of a messenger. So here's a good message. It's a good message. This is all really what it means. And this is how it may have been written on some of the scrolls, all in capital. So we see this, this word, euangelion. Obviously, it's also the word that we get evangelical or evangelization and all the, the words that are that are related to that. This word we're going to see is going to be tied into sort of how we define this. Because obviously the New Testament is mostly studied by New Testament scholars, and New Testament scholars are Greek scholars. They spend a lot of time comparing Greek literature and Greek writings with the New Testament. And so it's not surprising that many of them believe that the idea of the euangelion or the gospel is compared to other Greek literature. And one of the areas that we, we see is in, in relation to the pronouncement of things related to Caesar or other great kings. Now, as many of you know, uh, ancient uh, calendars typically are dated by the reign of a various king. So in the year, the fifth year of the king of Assyria or the sixth year of the reign of Caesar Augustus or Tiberius. So we typically change the calendar in ancient times based on the installation of a new king. And so there are a number of different inscriptions and writings, and this is one that was discovered, the Priene calendar inscription, it's called. It was, a, it was obviously, it's a stone with Greek writing on it. And it was discovered in the ancient Greek city of Priene, which is in Western Asia Minor, uh, Turkey. Um, written, about the, uh, written in the year 9 BC to announce a new calendar based upon the birth of Caesar Augustus. Many scholars use this inscription, but also other similar writings, not just this inscription, but the concept that's found on this inscription as one of the keys for where the New Testament uh, writers got the term euangelion or the idea of gospel. So I'm just going to, we're just going to look at part of this calendar inscription. And so this is, this is obviously written in Greek from uh, the perspective of a Greek or Roman audience, I should say, or Greco-Roman audience. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, that's a soter, the same word we use uh, oftentimes for Jesus in the New Testament, a savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. So again, this is a long inscription. We're just, talking, we're just showing one part of it. The birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the euangelion, of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. So this term euangelion was used in this context uh, as the good tidings or the good tidings of a new king. In this case, the good tidings of the birth of where this calendar is going to be altered. So again, this is one of the, 
the things that New Testament scholars will tell us, that this is one of the key usages for the idea of euangelion. The question that we have is, was, you know, it was Mark introducing the beginning of the good news or the euangelion of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the same way that the prying inscription was giving us the good news of Caesar Augustus. I want to suggest that looking back, I think we can see providentially, but not by providence, but by God, that these terms were were overlapping. But I want to suggest something else uh, to us altogether. Nonetheless, Mark does begin his gospel this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's, it's very clear that the gospels and Paul have to struggle with the idea that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And so we do have this sort of parallelism that you see, uh, I think that's in there. But I want to suggest that the root of the euangelion um, is going to be different than perhaps what we see on the prying inscription. Mark puts in the mouth of, John, of Jesus that his first, his first proclamation, uh, it says in Mark 1.14, after the arrest of John, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the, the euangelion, the good news, the gospel of God. And of course, at the very end of, of Mark's gospel, his writing, after the resurrection, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So the book ends for Mark. Obviously, this is the beginning of the gospel. At the very end, Jesus says, take this gospel. So this word, this idea is really strong in the book of Mark, more, like I said, more so than even any of the other four uh, gospels themselves. So when it comes to this idea of the gospel of God, well, are there different types of gospels even mentioned in the Bible? And are we supposed to uh, think differently about these things? Obviously, as scholars look at these phrases, they try to parse them out, uh, all these different terminologies used for the gospel. So 45 times the gospel is used pretty much like I'll say standalone. It's just the gospel. There's not, it's not the gospel of something. Mostly Paul uses this as describing his own message, my gospel, or a phrase like the gospel must, must be preached. Sometimes from verses around that, you can get an idea of what Paul or other people are referring to, but it's not a, it doesn't have a descriptor attached to it. But many times you'll see it attached to something. So for instance, as we saw in Mark, the gospel of God or the gospel of the kingdom of God or the gospel of the grace of God. That terminology is used about 14 different times. Matthew will often call it the gospel of the kingdom. And rather than the kingdom of God, he'll just say the gospel of the kingdom. So there seems to be an attachment oftentimes. We will see it's often referred to as the gospel of the Messiah or the gospel of Christ, or in some cases, the gospel of Jesus Christ. About nine different times, Paul uses this quite a bit. And one time as the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So we have this connection there. We also have in one place, it's called the gospel of peace, having your feet shod with the gospel of peace. So we have these different terminologies, but it seems like the, the authors are writing this term mostly with the idea of Paul, especially with the idea that his audience has some idea of what, what he's referring to. Now, obviously when we think of the gospel, uh, probably the, the phrase that comes up the most is Romans and Romans chapter one. So this is where we have Paul gives his description, not only of his own calling, but of the gospel itself. Romans chapter one, and obviously if you want to turn there, you can, otherwise I'm going to read it for you. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So that's where we get this idea of the gospel of God which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So this is the gospel concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot in there. And uh, for those of you who have never gotten an audio series that Dwight did on Romans, 
I would highly suggest it. He unfortunately didn't have a chance to go through all of Romans in that, but he really concentrated on chapter one quite a bit. And there's so much uh, treasure in that, in those verses. So Paul tells us something interestingly in this, among other things. We're not going to get through, we're not going to talk about this whole passage. But Paul tells us in, in verse two that this gospel, Paul was set aside for, the, for a gospel that was promised beforehand by the prophets. So it was promised beforehand by the prophets. So Paul is not referring merely to, as we're going to see, the story of Jesus alone or the, or the, the story of Jesus as it, his earthly existence, let's say. But he's, he's saying there's something from the, from the prophets. This whole thing, this whole good news was prophesied. So I think for those of us who have studied this, we, we, of, course rec- we of course recognize, and I don't just mean typology where you can follow the, you know, the crimson cord, as it were, from Genesis through the, the Torah and through Judges and all the way through the, uh, the prophets and, and the Psalms and the other writings and, and finally until Matthew. I'm talking about specific prophetic utterances that altered their thinking. And probably the, the one area that was drawn upon the most and had kind of the, the seed of what we might call the gospel is Isaiah. And especially the, the portion of Isaiah that starts in chapter 40. So the last part of Isaiah or the last 26 chapters, or I guess 27 chapters maybe, um, of Isaiah is the message is aimed, or initially is aimed for the comforting of the exiles of Jerusalem. Obviously, they were taken uh, into captivity into Babylon. And the restoration, the, the message that was given during, during this series of, uh, of prophecies or of declarations, because they're not all prophecies, there, many of them are just declaration about what God is, is thinking, what God is going to do. Um, he's going to bring a message of hope. He's going to bring a message of forgiveness and a message and a hope of restoration, a restoration for the land, for the people, for Jerusalem. But in the midst of all of that, these are some of the richest passages describing God's character, his desire to save, his heart for his people, God's righteousness, um, that he is the only God and he is the one who will save them. There is no other. Um, so these, these passages, uh, if, if you've never read Isaiah 40 through 66, even in one sitting, which can be done, you can do it in probably less than an hour. And it's just, it just, it's like just constantly hearing God's character and, and the desire. And if you're reading that in thinking about living in that first century, having read or being inspired by these, these passages, I think you get an, a little bit of an idea of what John the Baptist and, and Jesus and Paul and the other disciples are thinking about when they think about God. Um, obviously, there are, there are many direct quotes, and we're going to see that, that obviously it's when you start seeing uh, where all of these quotes come from, you realize, wow, there's a lot of these come from Isaiah 40 through 66. And so there not only are many quotes, but allusions, partial quotations, uh, by Jews. So if you're reading other Second Temple literature, you'll see this as well. But obviously, you're going to see this in the New Testament. I want to go through a little bit of this and try to get a flavor of what um, what the word euangelion, the good news, could have come from if it came from Isaiah. Now, obviously, when we think of Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40 verse 3 is used by all four Gospels to describe John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, all of which mention specifically Isaiah. So we can go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They all are doing it slightly differently. Um, but they all say, just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So all of these, um, you can see in some cases, Mark combines this with Malachi. We have, you know, Luke. and But here in John, John himself, it says, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, make way, uh, make the way of the Lord straight as Isaiah the prophet said. So not only did the gospel writers all understand that the, the ministry of John was, was immediately taken from, um, from Isaiah chapter 40 and his, his, whole, his whole mission statement, as it were, out of Isaiah verse uh, 40, but John understood that that was his mission. And of course, we're going to see this because 
the angel told Zechariah, his father, that that was going to be his mission. So from his from birth, from the first time he could hear what his father was telling him, he was being told that this is your calling. And he understood that that was his calling. And all of the writers of the New Testament want to tell us that this was the calling. So let's go back to Isaiah 40 and let's see what it actually says. Isaiah 40, again, this is this is a transition in Isaiah where it starts talking about God comforting, God coming around and putting his hands around Israel and telling them uh, that he is going to restore what has been taken from them through the exile. So he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that all her warfare has ended, that her guilt has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the uneven ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, the people are indeed grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Go up on a high mountain, Zion, messenger of good news. Raise your voice forcefully, Jerusalem, messenger of good news. Raise it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his recompense is with him and his reward is before him. So you can see all of the different passages. Obviously, uh, Isaiah 40 verse 3 is where we get uh, the message for John himself. So let's just talk about this last portion where it talks about the word good news. This is a classic Hebrew doublet. Go up on a high mountain, Zion, messenger of good news. Raise your voice forcefully, Jerusalem messenger of good news. So this is just basically get up somewhere high uh, upon the hills of Jerusalem and say to the city, say to the people of the city, obviously, give them the message of good news. And what are they supposed to say? We're going to see here, your God is here. So this word uh, good news in Hebrew is the word uh, basar, uh, which has the same connotation to bear tidings, um, it sometimes is connected to the word tov, which is good. Here, it, it doesn't happen to have the word uh, tov always attached to it uh, because it's used in different different word patterns. Uh, but nonetheless, this idea is basar. And of course, when this word was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, when this phrase was translated, it was translated into words that are euangelion or derivatives of euangelion. So this is how we, we got the word or the Greek word that comes right out of Isaiah um, into the Greek as euangelion. So it doesn't require the New Testament. The New Testament writers didn't need to invent this word. It was already translated several hundred years before this idea was, was there. So we're going to see that this is, this is not a stretch that they would begin using this word for the good news. Do not fear, say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with his arm ruling with him. Behold, his compensation is with him and his reward before him. Now, we're not going to get into a lot of Hebrew here, but those of you who know Hebrew, you know what word here I'm bolding in red, and that's the word hine. Hine Elohechem, which is behold here, or I should say, behold your God. We It's translated in most of our Bible, here is your God. But in Hebrew, it would just be behold your God. And then you can see right after that verse, behold, he nay, the Lord God will come with his might, with his arm ruling with him. He nay, his compensation is with him and his reward before him. And so this word, obviously it in the Hebrew would have a little more of a strong connotation. And we don't want to get in, I don't want to get into the connection with he nay or the word he nay me. Um, but there, there clearly is intended to be a, a connection between that phrase and all the phrases and uses of this word hine or hineni. But nonetheless, this is what they're supposed to say. 
your God is here, or here's your God, or behold your God. So that's the, that's the beginning or the, the connection there. Think about that as the good news. If, if you're presenting Jesus, Yeshua, and you're saying, behold your God, here is the good news to behold your God. In this, interestingly, is another phrase. We're going to see, obviously, these passages are mentioned numerous times in the New Testament. But this phrase, the people are indeed grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the God of our God stands forever. Now, you may have read that before, but you read it from probably another passage. You read that out of uh, 1 Peter. For Peter says, for you have been born again, not of perish perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God, for all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. This is the word that was, what do you mean this word? What is this word? This word right here. Now, interestingly, if you, if you go into the Greek and you ask, what did Peter say when he says, this is the word that was preached to you? Well, that is a euangelion word, okay? So this is the word that was good news to you. So again, they're linking this. It's not surprising. He's quoting right out of Isaiah 40 that he would pull a word, this idea of good news right here. So this passage, Isaiah 40, remember, Peter was there when John was preaching. And so he would have linked right in with the message of John. We don't have long sermons from, from John the Baptist, but I'm certain uh, some of them came out of Isaiah 40. Um, but, but clearly, Peter had an idea of the good news connected with this as he's quoting, this is the word preached to you out of Isaiah 40. Now, the other passage that we often link with euangelion or the good news from Isaiah is comes from Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of them who bring good news, who announce peace, and bring good news of happiness, who announce salvation and say to Zion, your God reigns. Not he nay, behold your God, but your God reigns. So you can see, obviously, good news mentioned here twice. Both are translated euangelion or basar, then euangelion derivatives. They're, you know, because obviously the, the, the root words are modified to, for other words. Announcing salvation. Yeshua, you're going to announce Yeshua and say to Zion, your God reigns. And of course, the word reigns, as many of you also know, is the word malach, which is the same word used for a king or a kingdom, um, malchut or melech. Um, so all of these different words come together. So it's not at all surprising that we all of these terms begin weaving themselves together in the New Testament. Good news is related to salvation. Good news is related to peace. As the angels said to the shepherds, um, announcing peace, it's good news. It's an, it's an announcement for Jerusalem. It's an announcement for Judah. It's an announcement for the restoration. And the only way this restoration can come and salvation can come is if God shows up and if he is in control. So as I, you know, I talked about this idea of a bumper sticker. You know, I often don't like the fact that we try to Oil God's word or God's message onto a bumper sticker. It rarely works. Um, but it, I was wondering to myself, what if Isaiah himself had a bumper sticker, maybe on, on his donkey or something like that, or on his cart? If he was going to put a bumper sticker on his car, what would it say? And I, I just said, well, I think it would say this. Behold your God. He is here. He is king. So Maybe if somebody wants to put that on a sticker, uh, go ahead and then just put Isaiah down below that uh, as, as the person who said that. But th that is, I mean, if you want to boil down the message, obviously it can be layered. It, it's, it's opened up like an onion. You keep taking the layers off. But that is, what is the message? What is the good news? God is here. He hasn't abandoned us. He is here and he is king. He is sovereign. He's in control. And he is beginning to set things right because he is not only here, but he is in control. He is king. We see this phrase in Mark 14, or Mark 1, uh, 14, 15. After John, we had talked about this already, but now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, the good news of God. 
and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the time is here. God is here. The time, the time of waiting is over. Now is the time. What has happened? God, the, the king, God is here, is at hand. And you need to respond and believe and turn. Matthew uh, listed a little more simply, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which we, we've heard many, many different times. So this phrase, kingdom of heaven, kingdom, the idea of kingdom, your God is king, declare this, your God is here, your God is king. It can be basically taken right out of Isaiah. Like John, Jesus uses a passage from Isaiah as his mission statement. I, I think we're all very familiar with when Jesus was in, at the synagogue in Nazareth, when he took the book of the prophet Isaiah, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim reliefs to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set those, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So we know that he was reading from Isaiah 61. And uh, based on other scholarly work, including Steve Notley, believes that Jesus may have also been reading from Isaiah 58.5, or at least bringing the two ideas together. And I would even suggest that he's hinting at Isaiah 42.6, because all of these phrases are not all found in Isaiah 61. This is the mission statement. So all of these passages together are brought together. Jesus not only mentions it here, but he also tells John, uh, John's disciples, when John's disciples are sent to him, you know, you know, what are you doing, Jesus? And Jesus turns and says, go tell John. And he reads from these passages, again, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 58, and probably Isaiah 42 as well. This is the, the foundations of the gospel, I want to suggest. The word euangelion and the idea of the gospel came out of Isaiah and not out of, you know, the proclamations for the declaration of, of kings or Caesars and the changing of the calendar, although I think the language coincidentally comes together and strengthens the, the terminology, both from the prophetic as well as the proclamation of Jesus coming. So when we think of the, the message of the gospel, it's clear that it is both a proclamation and a confrontation. As a proclamation, we know that, in fact, most of the occasions when we see the word uh, gospel in the New Testament, it's attached to the concept of proclaiming it or preaching it. So 57 of the 94 times that the word gospel or the euangelion is used in the New Testament, at least in the New American Standard as it's translated to gospel, it's coupled with a word which implies it was to be preached. So that's way more than half. So it's either preached or proclaimed or spoken or the gospel was heard or the gospel which I testify or the message or in word. So it's, it's not just a theory or an idea. It's a message that is intended to be delivered. Okay, so that's one thing that we need to understand. So we need to understand what are we supposed to be proclaiming? On one of the days while Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. So these are, these are seen as sort of two different things, teaching the people and preaching the gospel. Uh, Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. Philip, it says, but Philip found himself at Ezotis, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So he's preaching. And then first, uh, first Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15.1 now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. So again, this is a, intended to be a message. So it's a proclamation, but the proclamation or the statement or what you say is a ongoing revelation. It continues to roll on. So like I said, as the prophets were proclaiming this, overall, the proclamation can be boiled down into something like this. God sees what is happening, and he has promised to show up and set things right. When that happens, it will be good news for you, and it'll be good news for everyone. Well, we'll see. It'll be good news for those who respond appropriately. 
But the idea is it's supposed to be good news to Zion. It's supposed to be good news to those who are going to be the hearers. So if I were to put this again, God is here and he reigns is what Isaiah would tell us. The kingdom of God is at hand is the way that Jesus proclaims this. Again, God is here. He sees what's happening. He's showing up and he's setting things right. And then for us and for the disciples, Jesus has risen from the dead. He is alive. He is still here and he's still able to set things right. That is the message that the apostles had. And that's certainly the, the message that you and I should have. So that's the proclamation. That's the statement. And as we read through the, the scriptures, we should be thinking, how can I tell this story in a way that reveals to the audience that I'm talking about that God is still here? He's still setting things right. And he needs you to respond. So that confrontation side of it is that time is now. The time is now. The proclamation of God coming is here. And so it requires you to respond. And the implications of this good news for you is dependent on your response or your responses. So good news is coming. Something is changing. God is setting things right. What are you going to do about it? Or how are you going to fit into this good news message? And the message that we have from the New Testament, primarily when the gospel was preached, was that the response was supposed to be repent and immerse or repent and be baptized. Believe, as, as we see from the beginning of Mark, repent and believe the gospel. Or sometimes it said obey the gospel. Paul talks about bringing about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles in his gospel message. We are supposed to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel or the good news that has been preached to us. And we're supposed to have hope that it's supposed to change the way that we think about the future. And so all of this message of the gospel is not just a bunch of theories or a bunch of ideas. It was intended to come with signs following or with proof. The reason you can believe that this message is going to, is happening is not just because I said so, it's because there is evidence of things or you should be expecting evidence of this good news. And so I always say the gospel has proof. For the prophets, when God is going to act on behalf of Israel, it will be accompanied by the restoration and rebuilding of Israel, Zion, Jerusalem. Much of Isaiah 40, verse 60, uh, 40 through 66 is talking about that restoration. If there will be peace and end to warfare with judgment on the oppressors. So that God's going to turn the table on things. So those who are oppressing will be put down and those who are oppressed will be lifted back up. Um, there are going to be healing of the brokenhearted. There's going to be given sight to the blind, shepherding of the lost sheep. All of these words that Jesus brings uh, that talks about, these are the things the deaf will hear. The dead will rise from the, the grave. And especially this idea of salvation and the forgiveness of sins will be given to them. And so you see this in Isaiah, you see this in a number of both passages of Isaiah that we read that talk about the, the good news coming. Uh, Jeremiah talks about this, obviously, the, the, the promise of the new covenant coming. But let me read for you out of Isaiah, and it's a little bit of a longer passage, but I think it really helps to get a flavor. Like I said, I think you should read this whole passage, but let me just read out of Isaiah 43, starting with verse 1. It says, but now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. I will give Egypt, Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, 
and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes and they're deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together in order that the people may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declare the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. Even I am and there is no savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for, for your sake, I have sent to Babylon. And I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, the ho your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth a chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will be spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers and desert. The beasts of the fields will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and river in, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. Yet you have not called me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offering, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor worried you with incense. You have brought me no sweet cane with money, neither have you filled me with the fat, fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have mirried, uh, wearied me with your iniquities. Now listen to this final verse. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Wow, I mean, that, just that passage just stands on its own. But think about how many, how that language can affect us. And turn also, if you have a chance, to Ezekiel 36. And listen to the words of Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore, says the house, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yudhe declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from the lands, and bring you to your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine on you and I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations and then it says you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations I am not doing this for your sake declares the Lord God let it be known to you be ashamed confounded for your ways O house of Israel Thus says the Lord, on the day I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. And the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passed by. And they will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. 
Then the nations that are left around about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt and the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will do to the house of Israel. They will ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifice, like the flock at Jerusalem during their appointed feast. So will the waste cities be filled with the flocks of men. Then they will know or have proof that I am Yudhei Vavhei. Think about those passages. And I just read two relatively small passages of the promise of God showing himself. If you want to know who I am, you will see by my actions. Now, this wasn't lost on Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Listen to what he prophesies over John and see if you think he understands the gospel. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way. That's Isaiah 40. To give this people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because the tender mercy of our God with which sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. So Zechariah had this much more uh, broad understanding of what the good news, the expect expected good news was going to be. And of course, that was fed into John early on in his life. The signs of the good news are God restoring, God forgiving, God cleansing, God bringing his spirit. All of these are the expectations of the signs of the gospel, of God coming. Now, when Jesus came, the signs that he had were mostly Jesus's own teaching and healing. So Jesus was going through the galley, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and healing every kind of sickness. In response to John, he says the same thing. The, the, the poor will have the gospel preached to them, but what else is going to happen? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. This is the signs that God is here and that he is king. Matthew, he began to denounce the cities and he says they did not repent. Repenting was the response to the good news. They didn't repent, but they saw miracles. So Jesus is connecting the miracles that they saw with the idea that they should have understood and repented. Luke uh, records Jesus saying, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Of course, the kingdom of God is the message of the gospel. And even the disciples, they went out, it says, and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing many sick and healing them. When God shows up, something should be happening. And it was. Of course, the resurrection becomes the definitive sign of the gospel. Starting in Peter, in Acts 2 primarily, Peter goes through and talks about the good news and the definitive sign of the resurrection of Jesus is used as that definitive sign that God has really visited and brought good news. So in Acts uh, chapter 2, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter is giving that first message and he's, he's talking about the various Psalms about David you know, David going and predicting this idea that he wasn't going to see death. And of course he says, well, David, you know, here's his tomb. He did die, but Jesus didn't die. He was resurrected. And so that whole story is brought up about the good news. And then he ends the idea with Jesus is resurrected from the dead and therefore you should repent. So the connection between the evidence of Jesus's resurrection. And of course, when, when Peter is brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, he says the same exact same thing. He says that this resurrection of Jesus came as the prophets foretold that repentance was going to come to 
to Israel to to Israel for the forgiveness of their sins. So there's this connection, and of course we know that you know Luke uh, tells us that when Jesus, after his resurrection, met with the disciples, he taught them from the the law, the prophets, and the writings and the Psalms, the meaning of of his his life, the meaning of his message, and clearly the the connection with the resurrection and the meaning of that related to the gospel. The good news comes with evidence. It comes with proof. And the resurrection for us is that proof. Paul is very clear on the connection between uh, the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, this is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 1 through 4. The gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ, the Messiah, died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So for Paul, that gospel is bound up in the the idea that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And then, of course, we all know uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where he emphasizes, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So if the evidence of the gospel isn't really evidence, then the gospel isn't true. And God really hasn't come. He isn't here. And he hasn't he isn't setting things right. And, he, and you are still, the, what the prophet said, that he would come and forgive your sins, hasn't happened yet. So, again. First uh, Thessalonians, where he's dealing a little bit more with a Gentile audience. Uh, actually, Corinthians is a you know blended audience, but First uh, Thessalonians seems to be more of a Gentile audience. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols. So they are obviously idol worshippers to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So again, Paul's message to these groups was centered on the resurrection and then worked out from there. And we don't have time to go into Paul's first message in Pisidian Antioch, where he mentions resurrection, his message at Mars Hill in in Athens, where he mentions resurrection. It was the core of Paul's message. So that's the proclamation and that's the proof. And then of course, we talk about the response. Um, The response to the gospel has always been really the same. Um, and, and this even goes, I would say, even before uh, Matthew, it's always been the same, but obviously it's progressed and we now know it uh, centered in the Messiah, in Jesus. But the, the, the crux of the message has been the same. Repentance. Clearly, throughout all the Hebrew Bible, all the prophets are saying, God is coming. God is continuing wanting to come and be in your presence. So you need to turn away from And in some ways, we also want to think of turning back towards God. So turning away from sin, from idols, from things that that break the relationship with God and turning towards him. And then to confess. And so we have this idea in the New Testament, especially repent and believe, repent and confess, repent and submit. So these ideas are come together in this idea of being baptized, where the 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 idea of being baptized, which obviously John brought out of the ritual immersion notions that, that were growing in the Second Temple period, the need for uh, ritual purification, because you're going to meet God. You're going to come into God's presence. And so repent and be baptized has all this idea of, of confessing and understanding uh, the sinfulness, the need for salvation, and the, the identity of the burial and resurrection of Jesus himself. The obedience of faith or the obedience of faithfulness. Paul says he brought this gospel in order to bring about the obedience of faith. So it has something to do with our character. Of course, even John, when he was saying, repent and be baptized, people said, well, what should I do? Well, he didn't say, well, go and understand the theology. He gave them practical ways. If you're doing this, turn away from that and do this instead. So you're supposed to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is that process. This is that ongoing revelation of allowing God's work in our life. He is here and he is reigning in my life. And finally, the gospel should give us a hope for the return of God. We are still expecting things uh, to be set right. All things 
are not yet set right. Look around. I mean, things set right. Uh, it doesn't take you very long to figure it out. No, most things don't seem to be set right. But things will be set right. And things will be set right forever. And ironically, that event will also begin with another resurrection. So the, the, the beginning, the culmination of all things will also be a resurrection itself. So let's go back to Romans again, but a different part of Romans to hear Paul say things a different way. Romans chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So notice, Jesus as king or as Lord, your God is here and he is king. And you believe in the evidence in your heart, you believe in the evidence of that gospel, which is he raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him if they don't believe? How will they believe in him who have they not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written out of Isaiah 42, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring euangelion, the good news, the gospel of good tidings. You are that those people. You've heard the good news, and I would suggest that you are intended to go. Jesus says you are to go and preach the gospel, baptizing them and teaching them everything that he has taught them making disciples, making those who are followers of Jesus. So that commandment, if you feel that that commandment falls upon you, then you are to be not only understanding what the good news is, but you should be able to proclaim it and adapt it to the situation that you find yourself or you find your audience or even the one person. What do they need? They need to hear that God is here and that he is in control and that they need to respond to that message. They need to know that God is here now and that they need to respond to that. So as, as Paul would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Amen.